Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us by your Son and through your words, and we pray that you would reveal yourself again to us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Rob. I'm a member of the congregation here. Uh, it's great to be here live uh, in person with some of you uh, and to be with you as well uh, through the wonders of internet streaming, uh, hopefully as well. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of joining a film halfway through and trying to work out what's going on or picking up a book to read and realizing it's the last one in the series. That's a little bit what we're doing uh, this morning as we start this new series looking at the book of Genesis and the last few chapters, chapters 37 through to 50. Chapters 37 to 50 is, if you like, book five of five of the series of Genesis. Uh, You can split the book of Genesis up into five chapters, each one beginning with words something like, these are the generations of dot, 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 and this is the last one. And like many final installments, Uh, This bit ties up a few of the loose ends and answers some of the questions that have been raised earlier in the story. Specifically, Genesis 37 to 50 answers questions posed back in Genesis 12, when God made those promises to Abraham, specifically about how he was going to make him into a great nation. Yet in Genesis chapter 37, well, he's a big family, but he's not a great nation yet. Secondly, there's a question raised back in Genesis chapter 15, and which was picked up in in our New Testament reading. How is it that God's people are going to go from Canaan, where they are now, to spend 400 years sojourning in Egypt? But as well as answering those questions, Genesis 37 to 50 is the story of how God uses the most unlikeliest of people through their obedience and despite unusual cruelty to win rescue and glory for himself. We're going to see that in chapter 37 this morning in three parts. Firstly, God is at work through an unlikely choice. Secondly, God is at work through the obedience of a son. And finally, God is at work through the cruelty of men. So, point number one, God is at work through an unlikely choice, verses 1 to 11. If you haven't turned there already, uh, please do grab a Bible and turn up to Genesis uh, chapter 37 uh, and verse 1, where we see that Joseph is the unlikeliest of heroes, but God chooses him anyway to rescue his people and to display his glory. Take a look at Genesis 37 verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph. This story should be about Jacob, but it's not about him, and it's not even about Reuben, his eldest son and so likely heir. No, the story moves immediately to Joseph, and it's not a promising start, because Joseph's relationship with his family is, well, let's say, complicated. Verse 3 says this, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Jacob, who's called Israel here, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Likely that was because Joseph was the son of Rachel, his first love. But he doesn't hide it. His favoritism is dressed up in all his doting technicolor love. 
And as a result, bitterness has taken root in the hearts of his brothers such that they cannot even speak to Joseph without violence erupting. Finally, as well as all this, Joseph is a dreamer. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Verse 9, they dreamed another dream and told it, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Unsurprisingly, these uh, two dreams which pictured Joseph uh, at the heart of things with his brothers and his mother and his father bowing down before him, uh, don't win him any plaudits. This young usurper, the spoiled child, the dreamer with his head in the clouds, well, humanly, Joseph is not the person that you choose to rescue God's people, but he fits God's plan perfectly. And if you've seen the film uh, The Usual Suspects, it's really well known for the twist at the end, which I'll try not to ruin for you. Uh, but you'll note when you see a character drop a coffee cup to the floor, as suddenly everything is revealed and the storyline which he thought was going on in the background is completely wrong. And a totally unexpected central character emerges and has been falling into place behind the scenes all along. That is a little bit like the plot line of Genesis so far. All the way back since Abraham, it's the unlikely choice that emerges. It's Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, and now Joseph, not Reuben, who's chosen by God. God, you see, is in the habit, this is his MO, of choosing the people you would least expect to achieve his purposes. And perhaps that's why and even as, Joseph, even as Jacob scolds Joseph, he keeps his dream in mind. Because this is not merely Joseph daydreaming. This is God previewing. This is God giving us a glimpse into his rescue plan that is to come. I wonder if you feel a little bit like Joseph this morning. That you might be the unlikeliest of people for God to use. Or perhaps we feel that together. We feel that God's people are vulnerable and weak and so often retreating rather than moving forward. We should remember that God loves to use the unlikely choice, that he loves to choose the weaker things to shame the strong. And we find our place in the world not by uncovering some hidden strength, but by admitting our inner weaknesses and choosing to trust that God will use us anyway, despite them. This is God's way. And so Joseph may be an unlikely choice, but he is God's choice. He's revealed himself to him, and Joseph now responds to God. You are here this morning, and God is revealing himself to you through his word. He's revealed himself to you most supremely by coming to earth as a person of Jesus. The question is, like Joseph... Will you listen to that call? Because no matter who you are, no matter how weak you are or how strong you feel, you only truly find your place in this world by being part of God's storyline. So first, God is at work through an unlikely choice. Secondly, God is at work through the faithfulness of a son in verses 12 to 7. And Joseph is an unlikely choice uh, to be God's servant, but he's going to prove to be a faithful son. 
God works with unlikely people as they choose to serve him, even in the most difficult and trying of circumstances. Let's pick things up again in verse 13. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. These verses are incredible, though it might not seem like it at first glance. Jacob asked Joseph to go and check on his brothers, even though they hate him. And Joseph says, here I am. I'll go. I'm willing. Immediately. And Joseph is immediately obedient, even though it means going to Shechem. Shechem was where Joseph's brothers, Simeon and Levi, had previously killed all the males in retaliation for defiling their sister. You can read about it back in Genesis chapter 34. So Joseph is going to seek the brothers that hate him in a place where they hate his whole family. But Joseph doesn't stop there. Verse 15, a man found Joseph wandering the fields and asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And this looks like a reprieve for Joseph, doesn't it? He goes after his brothers who hate him in obedience to his dad. And he has to go to a place where they hold his whole family. But when he gets there, the brothers aren't there. Great. He can go home. He's done his best, he's obeyed his father, and now he can get out of there. But he doesn't. He goes on, and he ends up in Dothan, a place that archaeologists tell us was filled with terrible practices, including child sacrifice. Why does Joseph do this? Well, I think the answer has got to be that Joseph loves his father, and so he's willing to do incredibly difficult things to serve him. I don't know if you've ever noticed how easy it is to grab the keys and to head out at night into the cold and the rain when you're going to pick up the takeaway rather than heading to the gym. Or what about that hopelessly in love couple? And when the boyfriend or the girlfriend thinks nothing of driving miles and miles just to see their partner for a few minutes. What would look ridiculous or painful endurance to anyone else or grueling work is nothing to the one who labors and works for the sake of love. And this is what is happening here. Joseph loves his father, and so he chooses to be faithful. He chooses to obey, and he does so wholeheartedly, even though that means seeking the brothers that hate him in a place where he may be in very real physical danger. And in doing so, Joseph foreshadows another son, a son who says, not my will, but your will be done. A son who is obedient, not just to come to earth and to go, but who's obedient to death, even death on a cross. For us, loving and trusting God means more than just saying those things. It's proved when we served God, when we serve God, not reluctantly, not half-heartedly, but in glad and full obedience, wherever we are. I wonder what that looks like for you this morning. Maybe it means taking on some significant risk and some hardship like Joseph. 
Maybe that means taking action on the Something Better campaign that Jack prayed for earlier. Maybe it means risking something to talk to a work colleague or a friend or a close family member about Jesus and being willing to do that out of love for them and out of love for our Heavenly Father. Maybe it means taking positive action to fight an ongoing sin in your life, something that you know has been going on for a while and that is secret and hidden at the minute. It means talking to somebody. It means getting someone to keep you accountable. Maybe it means for you going to serve Jesus in a new context. We were praying earlier, weren't we, for our new mission partners heading over to Madagascar. That's not going to be the call on everyone's life, but it is going to be the call on some. Maybe it's the call on someone in this room or someone watching this morning. Maybe God has spoken to you about that and you need to respond. Or perhaps what it means for you is serving God in the place and in the context that God has set you right now. Even if that feels mundane, even if that feels insignificant to you, because it isn't. Not because you're special, but because God is great. And that when we work in faith, when we labor in love, when we remain steadfast because of the hope that we have in Jesus, even the smallest things can be used by God to be eternally significant. So God is at work through an unlikely choice. God is at work through the faithfulness of that son. And God is at work finally, even despite the cruelty of men. God is capable of redeeming the most horrific of circumstances for our good and for his glory. The brothers mean to harm Joseph. They mean to kill him and to sell him off into slavery. But God uses their cruelty to save their lives just a few years later. Let's read on from verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come, now let us kill him and throw him into one of his pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. The brothers despise Joseph, and so from afar they plot his death. But it's not just Joseph that they're rejecting here. Look at the way that they talk about Joseph's dreams. Joseph's dreams are the way that God has revealed himself to his people here. If you read uh, Calvin's uh, words on this passage, he gets extremely angry. Because the brothers here are not just rejecting their brother Joseph. They're rejecting the God who has spoken to him and through him. The brothers hate Joseph, but they reject God's purposes here too. And so they end up treating Joseph exactly in the way that God's people will treat the Old Testament prophets to come, Jeremiah and Amos. Look at verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to him, said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Like Jeremiah and Amos to come, Joseph is cast into an empty cistern. 
But even here, there is a hint of God's mercy, a glimpse of God's protection and supervision. As Reuben intervenes to save Joseph from death and plots to later save him. Nevertheless, this is an episode of unusual cruelty. And look down to verse 25, where we see Joseph's brothers eat and talk while he is in the pit. And yet again, there's a hint of mercy here. As Judah now intervenes and Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt rather than being left in the wilderness to die. Look at verse 26. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. What is God doing? No doubt Joseph was asking a question something like that. But unlike him, we have the advantage of being able to read ahead. We read in our New Testament uh, reading from Acts chapter 7, how uh, Stephen retells how Joseph is brought now to Egypt, becomes prime minister there, and is able to save God's people from famine. Joseph himself sums it up like this in the very last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The intentional cruelty of Joseph's brothers here is going to be redeemed in a way that they could not possibly imagine, but somehow Joseph is able to trust in. God is not just going to rescue Joseph from the pit. He's going to deliver the nation of Israel from famine through Joseph and through his dreams. God does not waste suffering. He remakes it compounding glory and love and rescue and freedom on an eternal scale. But of course, even this story is just a shadow. Even this story, which we're going to see worked out in the coming weeks of Joseph's rescue and of the way that God redeems his suffering to rescue his people, is just a prototype, just a warm-up act, just a tiny sliver of God's grace and of his redeeming power that is to come. When another unlikely choice, a carpenter from a backwater backwater town, a son who is perfectly obedient to his father's perfect plan, who will choose with clear-eyed and certain understanding of the cruelty that is going to be inflicted on him to die so that people could not just be kept alive could not just be rescued from starvation, but we could be rescued from sin and death and given everlasting life in his name. Joseph responded to God's call on his life. He found his place in God's big picture by trusting God's revelation to him. He obeyed wholeheartedly the commands of his father in love. And so somehow he was able to trust that even through the uncomfortable cruelty that his brothers poured out upon him, And even in the misery of being sold as a slave in Egypt and all the injustice that is to come there, he could trust God. He could keep doing so. And in doing so, he imaged Jesus, his saviour, to come. 
And so, friends, this morning we must do the same. We must be like Joseph. We must respond to God's call on our life as he speaks to us through his word and by his son. We must, in love, obey with all our hearts our Father's command to go and to serve him in whatever context he would have us do that. And by doing so, it is possible for us to trust him through all of life's suffering, to endure all of life's difficulties, and to continue to that day when God will bring an end to all pain and to all sadness and to all cruelty and to all injustice, when he will make all things new. And when the full glory of his purposes, which are partially hidden from us now, and which he is working out despite and even through our weaknesses and through our, heart, and through our hurts, will finally and fully be displayed. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning. We praise you that you delight to work through the weaker things and the unlikeliest and unworthiest of choices because that is what we are. Please, would you help us by your Spirit's power work within us to obey you wholeheartedly and to trust that even in suffering, you mean it for our good and for your glory. In the name of the perfectly obedient Son, Jesus, we ask. Amen.